0: welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, ABI's Executive Director. We hope that you're doing well, and we appreciate you listening to us today. We are holding today's special podcast in conjunction with the host of Shepard Mullen's Restructure This podcast series, and we'll be talking with two distinguished members of the Bankruptcy Bench, Chief Judge David R. Jones and Judge Marvin Isker of the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas. Since there are many topics to discuss with Judge Isger and Judge Jones, I'll turn it over to Justin Bernbrock of Shepherd Mullen to kick off the conversation.
1: Thank you, Amy, very much. And uh, our thanks to the American Bankruptcy Institute for sponsoring uh, our discussion today uh, with Judges Jones and Isger from the Southern District of Texas Bankruptcy Court uh, Judge Jones, Judge Isger, thank you very much for, for your willingness to sit down with us and, and have a conversation. I think I think a lot of folks are going to be uh, very interested uh, in hearing what the two of you have to say on, on a number of wide-ranging topics that uh, touch on complex restructuring practice uh, today.
2: You're certainly welcome since you put my name first.
3: Justin, uh, thank you for having us. Anytime that the uh, ABI has a program like this, I think it's important. We support it, and uh, happy to participate in an ABI program.
1: So we like to start uh, the interviews by giving uh, the listeners a sense for uh, the guest's background and really how how they came to the the roles that that they're currently in. Uh, so, if I may uh, ask judge Jones uh, if, if you wouldn't mind giving us your 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 background and, and how you came to the bench uh, and then judge Isger uh, will ask us the same question to you
2: and how far back do you want me to go it's I was I was born the son of a sharecropper not not true at all but don't, most great stories start off that way they do Um it. I came to be a lawyer by way of a third career. I actually started out as a design engineer um, working in the defense industry. Um, I then went back to business school, became an analyst for a while. You know, this is a fancy way of saying I couldn't hold a job. And so I ended up uh, headed heading to law school. Believe it or not, I was Isger's first associate. Um, I learned how to like, you know, take, pick up his dry cleaning and, uh, you know, wash his car on the weekends and all the things that good young lawyers learn to do. Uh, but, uh, it's, I, he was definitely my mentor. Um, uh, everything I, everything I am, everything I know, I owe at least in part to him, uh, as well as a good probation officer. Um, when uh, Marvin left me to go to the bench, uh, I obviously continued on in the practice. Um, when an opening came up, uh, I was really torn. Uh, it was a really hard decision for me. I think Marvin will tell you it was something he always wanted to do. It was certainly not something I always wanted to do. Um, and he played a large part in forming my views about what could be done and, and the contributions that could be made from this position and and uh, he obviously he, he prevailed upon you know, not only me but uh i am sure that he that that he certainly voiced his opinion um to those folks who make the decisions um and then once i got there you know i i have two ways of i'm either on or off and once i decided i was going to do it i you know i devoted 110% to trying to make what I came to better uh, than it was when I arrived and hopefully I leave, you know, uh, hopefully I leave it a little better after I'm gone. Um, but it's, you know, for me, been 31 or 32 years of, you know, being around somebody that I have great admiration for, and certainly has played an awfully big role in, in the success that I've had.
3: Justin, uh, I also got an MBA and I was, in finance and real estate and Houston went through a great real estate depression and a few hundred million dollars worth of projects I'd worked on went through bankruptcy and I fell in love with the process went back to law school practiced law um, for about 14 years I hired David uh, during that time period to work for me I became a bankruptcy judge in 2004 and saw my first consumer cases after I got here, really fell in love with the consumer bankruptcy practice, and I devoted an awful lot of my early years as a bankruptcy judge to learning more about consumer law and working really uh, to improve the practice of consumer bankruptcy law. Uh, I am really proud of the fact that I think in the Southern District of Texas, we just have the best group of consumer lawyers and trustees that one could ever hope for, and that's developed um, over quite a few years. And I'm I'm really proud of what we've done there. Uh, Obviously in recent years, our district has had a lot of complex cases filed. And so I've tried, I I do, I keep my full consumer docket. I love that consumer docket, but I've also now gotten involved in the commercial side of bankruptcy as well.
1: uh, You may have heard this before uh, and I I heard it a long time ago, but uh, Judge, Conrad Duberstein or Connie Duberstein uh, for whom the Duberstein uh, competition is named. He used to have this joke that the uh, SD, uh, the the Southern district of New York judges would get the Johns Manville uh, cases and the Eastern district of New York would get the Manville Johns cases. And uh, it's, it's interesting, uh, but, I, but I think it, it highlights this uh, broad spectrum in the context of who passes through uh, the country's bankruptcy courts and, and Judge Isker in, in particular. How has the, the you know, on, on one day you're seeing Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 cases of, of individuals, and on the next day you may be seeing some of the largest chapter 11 cases filed in the country. And how, how does that uh, impact uh, really that, that dichotomy? How does it impact, you know, really how you approach a, a case day to day?
3: Having a family be able to stay in their home, keep the kids in school, have cars to get to and from work is by far the most important thing I do. If you want to know whether I care more about somebody's home or their $100,000 bond, you don't need to think very hard about that. Um, So I think we need to keep our focus on what we're really here about. Uh, It's not hard realizing that you perform the job of a bankruptcy judge differently in a consumer case, where maybe you just need to spend some time talking to a family that they need to have a savings plan, they need to stop Buying luxury goods and they need to get stable for their family. That's a much different role than you play in a complex case. And it isn't difficult at all uh, to just change hats, even on the same day or in the same hour. Uh, so I have kept my focus on the consumer side. And, you know, David had done some consumer work before he came, a lot more than I had, but was really a commercial lawyer. But it's interesting, I think when he came, he also focused heavily on the consumer side. And it's something you really realize how important it is. You know, more people in the United States come into contact with the court system through bankruptcy courts than any other way. And having people have confidence that somebody is really trying to address their issues, I think is an essential part of what we do. I mean, David, did you realize how important the consumer side would be to you before you came because it's been very important in terms of how you've conducted yourself here
2: no i i get criticized all the time for you know taking 90 months to complete a 60 month plan i i spend a lot of time trying to figure out ways to make those things work for the very reasons that you identified it's to keep somebody in their car to keep somebody in their home to keep a family together um it, it is not only the most important thing we do it's also it's also probably the most rewarding thing we do. Um, I probably had a little different appreciation of it just because I had the trustee practice as, as yeah, part of no, absolutely before I yeah. got there. This
3: is something you knew something about before you got here and it's something I didn't know much about before I got here.
2: Marvin's being very, he, he's being very modest about the changes that he made. He took a system That could best be described as chaos and he brought order to it he brought stability to it he brought training to the lawyers um he he established a set of expectations um you know while we have jointly we have certainly added to it over the years with things such as the savings plan and and some other changes that that we have implemented uh, he built the foundation and, and he everything that's happened after is really because, I mean, I think it took him, what, Marvin, three or four years to actually, to actually undo the mess that existed and, and establish the framework that we had. It,
3: it took a while, but it was a simple rule, which was have the consumer lawyers be consumer lawyers, let them be lawyers and respect what they do and have high expectations of them. And the consumer lawyers are very good, but if you set a low bar and low expectations, it's a difficult practice that they're in. And all I did was looked at people and said, you're better than that. And they were, and they stepped up to the bar. I'm so proud of them.
1: So shifting gears a, a bit, you know, in, in thinking about the uh, complex cases that, that the two of you have presided over. Uh, and, and really there was, I think, 2016 was was we'll call it the uh, explosion of of cases being filed in in Houston. Of course, I think most folks are familiar with the complex case order. Uh, but I guess from from your perspectives, why are more and more cases being filed in your court? Uh, and then a related question is: Does there any is, is anything? Uh, does anything need to change uh, in the context of the current venue statute? So
2: Justin and Marvin, I, I'm happy to start. I, to really huh. understand this answer, you sort of need to take a, a further step back. So when I got here in 2011, one of the things that I really wanted, and, and I grew up, I grew up in the days of some great restructuring lawyers uh, who were in Houston, such as Jan Baker and Harry Perrin, and, you know, guys who were just sort of legends in the restructuring practice. And I I don't mean to be limited in that list. You just don't want to hear them all. Um, And so when I got here, I really had this idea about, I, I wanted the court to reflect all of the things I had seen that were good in courts all over the country. And I I had the opportunity to travel or appear in more courts than than Marvin did. And so I I had seen good things. I had seen bad things. And I really wanted to have a court that took all the good things that people were doing and avoid that learning curve and try to put them together and have something that we could really be proud of. That process took a really long time. And it was really interesting because I was the youngest judge on the court, and you had, you know, certainly everybody has their own ways of doing
3: things. <laughs> you're not, you're not anymore, David.
2: Yeah, no, I, I'm reminded of that every single day. Um, but it really took it really took a long time to sort of bring a consensus uh, towards the view that I was trying to push forward. Um, so that, you know what you see in the complex order in that structure. That's not something that people got to got got together and did in 30 days. I mean, that was several years of talking and planning. And quite frankly, the person who made it work um, was uh, is retired Judge Jeff Bone. Uh, it's I I went to Jeff and um, I said Jeff, to make this work, you have to make a really tough decision. And um, because again, predictability is one of those things I was really focused on. And you know, I said, you know, to really make this work, Jeff, I need I need for you uh, to agree that um, that this complex uh, that the complex docket shouldn't be every single judge in the district. But no one's going to want to go first and say, I agree for the betterment of the district, for the betterment of the bar. I will I will agree not to participate because everyone's got the right to say no. And he didn't buy he didn't bet bet an eyelash i mean he he listened to me he i think he talked to marvin i i don't know who else he talked to but and he was he just stood up and said look look, the district's more important than me if you think that this is the right thing to do i'm going to trust that and he quickly you know once he did it everyone else um you know everyone else said you know okay jones is a little crazy but you know maybe he has maybe he has a good idea here so that that really is sort of the foundational underpinning of how we started um you know why it works you know you probably ought to talk to the practitioners rather than us um about that you know there were certain things that i believe were fundamentally important and you know number one being access You shouldn't you shouldn't ever be denied the opportunity to seek relief on behalf of your client because you can't get a hearing. And so that was, you know, that was really number one. And, you know, if you ask me, you know, Jones, in your 11 years, what's the best thing that you've ever done? That was convincing uh, our uh, convincing the clerk's office to give my case manager a government issued cell phone and then publishing that cell phone number on my website. Uh, hadn't been done before. And I mean, you, you, Justin, you've, you've taken advantage of it. I know, I hope a lot of the listeners have have used it as well. I mean, you guys are all professionals, you know, what not to do. Um, But having that access when you really need something, you know, if it's preserved one job or factored in the success of one business, however large or small, because that number is available, not just to the complex cases, it's available to every chapter 13 debtor, every chapter seven case, it's just there. And um, it took a little convincing for Isker because he still believes, you know, cell phones ought to have rotary dials. Um, But, uh, you know, he bought off on that, he bought off on that concept and it has just, has just really worked. Um, I know there was more to your question. You'll come back to that, but that's you know, Marvin, I'm, I'm but I would, right I would give
3: a, let me give a little different answer, Justin. Um, David is the one that has created the entire set of building blocks that have created what we do. And I did not have the national experience of knowing what other courts did or how things worked. I mean, I'd heard about it. I'd read about it, all that stuff, but David did it. Now, it's he didn't do anything where I didn't sign off on it. But there's a difference between being the architect and trying to sell me the design, which he did, than being a joint design. This wasn't a joint design. This was David's design. And I have signed off on whatever we've done. From what I have heard, there is a belief that different courts around the country might favor one side of the bar or the other. I have no experience in that. And I don't know if that's true or not. But one thing that was really important to me was that we not have a debtor-friendly court or a creditor-friendly court. And what has been designed and what we have both implemented is all of the bells and whistles are equally available to debtors and creditors. And if a creditor needs an emergency hearing, they can get it just as fast as a debtor can get an emergency hearing by calling my case manager by calling David's case manager. So my understanding, and I've never been there, is that when a big case is being filed and people are thinking about of all the different permissive venues, where do we wanna be? It's rarely a unilateral decision by the debtor. It's done in consultation with lots of people. If that's true, then I would think having a court that isn't side-biased might be the reason why people are looking here i don't know that but we've done our best not to be side biased the code is side biased right the code favors reorganization and we implement the code but i don't think that our procedures are side biased at all and you know who knows whether the rulings you, know, you make the ruling and you make without regard to which sides the money's on you try trying to apply the law to it but uh, I would that's the only difference I would maybe add is, at least based on what I've heard, that has probably been an important feature. And it's also the only way that I would want to practice as a bankruptcy judge is by being a non-side-oriented judge. Now, it, Justin, I may have a reputation for being you know totally creditor-oriented. But I don't know. But I, I hope I don't. I hope I have a reputation for being issue decisive.
2: Yeah, I don't even think that's a difference. I, I agree. With I agree with everything that you said, um, Justin. One of the other questions that you asked was, "Do things need to change?" My answer is really simple. I hope so. No, no way. Anyone ever gets perfection on the first try? I don't. People ever get perfection. So, at least, and I, and I, I can speak for Marvin for very few things, or that I would ever attempt to. But I know he's committed as a, as an eye to. You know, we listen. We have the complex. Uh, committee. I mean, that's how we hear about things. And we have reacted to concerns that have been expressed. We haven't always accepted them. Uh, sometimes they've said, well, you know, we think a could be improved. And so we suggest this path and we look at it and we go, yeah, A could be improved, but your solution's wrong. And so we've, you know, we go in a, we go in a different direction, but it, we, we uh, talk yeah, about changing. Yeah, yeah.
3: I'll give you an example of that. When we first established the complex panel, It was really a Houston-based panel because we didn't think anybody would ever travel to Idaho or Victoria to to file a complex case. It's just too hard. We got some divisional forum shopping, and we didn't want that. We wanted this to be a situation where people came in, they took a draw. It's a two-judge draw, but it's still two. And so we changed it to where it doesn't matter what division you pick you can't handpick your judge under our rules. And it's important. I I want the perception, not just the reality of of fairness. I I do want to say that I think some of my colleagues around the country have been unfairly attacked. Um, And I regret that. People are doing the best they can, I think. And I know a lot of the judges that get attacked. And it's a shame. But it's important that the public have confidence in what we do and so it, it is important to me that we have both the reality and the perception of being a fair court.
1: So, the, there's been some, some so shifting uh, away from the, the venue question uh, and looking more at some, some substantive points, uh, and, and really recently uh, coming out of the Eastern District of Virginia and, of course, the Southern District of New York. Two Chapter Eleven plans uh, that have been uh, heavily criticized by the district court on account of non-consensual third-party releases, and I, I think that there's there's also been some proposed legislation uh, in the Senate uh, that that gets to this point as well. Uh, I think, of course, most folks are familiar with the state of the law in the Fifth Circuit, uh, but you know these these are critical components of large chapter 11 practice today is that is that right uh, should there continue to be this possibility of non-consensual third-party releases or you know consensual third-party releases by use of a well i
3: look i, I think i think we ought to have uniform bankruptcy laws uh, but there's nothing we can do about that we're going to apply the law of our circuit that we're required to apply. So if somebody wants to come get non-consensual third-party releases, this is probably the wrong place to come because you know, I'm not saying that there may not be some maneuvering room somebody could find, but in general, our circuit is not favorable to third-party non-consensual releases in bankruptcy cases. Do we have a lot of third-party releases in our complex cases? We do, but we are really careful that every person that's the subject of one of those is given an opt-out form with a checkbox. And it's simple. And so I'll get plans in that say it's a release and unless somebody files an objection that meets these criteria. And I have never approved one of those. I've always said, no, I want this to be a checkbox. If somebody doesn't want to give the release. They don't want to get a release. You know, no problem. But we can't do much about making things uniform. We can only do much about, you know, even... We're not even uniform between me and David on everything, but we're uniform about this checkbox. And so if people want to do this, we're going to make it easy for people to opt out. And uh, I think it's important we follow our circuit law and not try and avoid it. David, I mean, do you feel any different about that?
2: Not about that part. Absolutely not. I, you know, it's, it's, it's in fact, because our circuit has given us such clear direction, it makes the course of action very clear and very easy. I also think, Justin, if you, if you drill down on the issue, I, it, it, and again, this is, just, this is just my personal view, I really think that this whole discussion is a good one because uh, it's my hope that what it does is it causes us to refocus our energy, our, our inquiry, our learning, on the whole direct versus derivative issue. Um, If you you ask me, me, uh, what do I really think about the whole concept of non-consensual third-party releases? And if you look even in our history, I do think that under certain circumstances that the concept of a limited non-consensual third party release is actually one that merits some discussion. Where it gets muddied is when you start saying, well, I want everyone that I can't identify, you know, I want the human population released from all claims from the beginning of time until the end of time. You know, that's problematic. I would also assert that it's unnecessary. And if we would reevaluate what's really necessary, I mean, you you can look into Fifth Circuit precedent and you can actually find in a non-bankruptcy context where the concept of non-consensual third party releases actually lives. But it's in if you look at it and I'm shorthanding that it's almost, you know, an identified list for a specified series of events over a specified time period. And, you know, it makes perfect sense when you're looking at it. It, It's just that we've gotten to the point where, you know, we have the argument in the context of all persons for all time. And obviously, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of inquiry to see the problems with that. But I... Um, I agree with Marvin. I mean, I it's you know the, we try to make it simple. We want everyone involved. It, I think we both share the view that everyone should have the opportunity to complain. Um, I'll also just tell you that you know how many times, even in, in even in those cases outside of the Fifth Circuit, when have you ever seen this come up? I mean, I know it's a great marketing tool and I know people love to say it and we all, we all like to fight about it because we all like to fight. When have you ever really seen it come up?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think these are, I think they're great points. Uh, I mean, I can think of at least two sort of broad swaths of, of instances where it was a very useful uh, component, uh, particularly in the asbestos uh, and then even Dalkalon Shield where there was significant liability management uh, and even uh, residential capital, a case I was involved in uh, in front of Judge Glenn, uh, in the Southern District of New York, the third-party releases were critical in connection with RMBS liability. Um, but I, I, it's, it, this, I think, is a topic that's uh, going to get a lot of discussion in, in the coming days and yeah. months. So, so, Justin,
3: look, I, there are narrow, narrow cases of situations. Typically, you have a mass tort where the mass tort plaintiffs may be better off and vote that way, 98% to 2% for giving third-party releases. Of course, in asbestos, Congress addressed the issue. But that's an issue for Congress, and whether that's a good idea, and I, I do think it, from a practical point of view, it probably increases the overall return to that group of creditors. Congress could therefore decide it's a good idea and vest us with that authority. But until either the Supreme Court says Fifth Circuit's got it wrong or Congress acts and says, here are the circumstances when you can or you can't, you know, David and Marvin are going to just sort of look at each other and shrug our shoulders because we can't.
1: There's, a, there's an interesting uh, thread in, in, you know, the, the recent decisions um, that really call, that, that raises the, the, the sort of stern core versus non-core uh, authority of a, of a bankruptcy court. And do, do some of these issues go away if bankruptcy court judges become article three judges?
3: <laughs> Look, I, 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 as David said, there's a fifth circuit case out there, which is non-bankruptcy, which holds that the district court could give non-consensual third party releases, but it was in a receivership context. So the fifth circuit has ruled Primarily, that the statute doesn't authorize it. And to the extent that that is correct, it isn't going to matter whether the judge hearing it is Article 1 or Article 3. Now, perhaps one could argue that if you have a bankruptcy case where it would then be appropriate to do it, that you could file a separate type of action heard by an Article 3 judge. Asking that non-bankruptcy powers under ancillary jurisdiction grant that third-party release, but you know that's a real stretch. And the Fifth Circuit hasn't—I don't think that we're restricted because in this case we're Article One versus Article Three. If that were really the problem, we could just recommend it to the district court. I think they said under the statute you can't do it.
2: Yeah, you know, I also—I also add. I mean, we we're looking at this from one direction. I mean, there are times when. Yeah, you know, in in sort of in, in, let me take a different approach. Just in the context of a national class action that would promote a settlement as part of a plan. I mean, at that point, everyone wants the everyone wants the bankruptcy judge to to have more authority than perhaps he or she has. But we we're lucky. I mean, both Marvin and I have benefited from the fact that we have a wonderful district court bench that takes an interest in what we do and they they actively participate and both both Isger and I have had district judges sit with us as part of the confirmation process so the whole article 1 article 3 issue becomes moot and I, again we're blessed to have district judges who you know they don't try to put us off into another courthouse and say, you know, you guys really, we, we will we don't want to hear from you. They actively try and understand the issues that we deal with. They talk to us, they, you know, they make themselves available whenever, whenever we need assistance. And, you know, for that, we're really super lucky.
3: Yeah. I mean, look, I had a, a case last year where uh, there was a, an attempt to get some approvals that I didn't think I had the authority to give, but it was integral to confirmation And I told the lawyers, I didn't think they had the authority to give it. And they were really trying to figure out what do they do about that? And I said, well, why don't I just see if the district court will hear this simultaneously with confirmation. And the lawyer said, you would do that. And I said, well, give me a few minutes. And I stepped off the bench. I called chief judge Rosenthal and she said, well, what day do you need me to come down and sit with you? And it's that level of cooperation from our district court. And so chief judge Rosenthal supports that, came down, sat with me. Um, She independently, she did not ask me how to rule as you might have, uh, uh, it would have been inappropriate for her to ask me how to rule and she didn't. She ruled independently, which is her job. In this case, she ruled for the debtors. Um, But yet we have a level of cooperation within our whole court that is pretty amazing to try and be practical about solving problems and saving jobs
2: which and I'm, justin if, if you didn't know and we are one of the few districts that has an integrated clerk's office you know that too has been a topic amongst the judiciary we had the benefit of having a clerk of court back when i first started as a lawyer i mean i came up in a consolidated clerk's office and it is it is that involvement that you know we've benefited from because you know the district we are part as defined by statute we're a unit of the district court we're treated like that but it's that integration that has really resulted in that cooperation at least my, that's my view
3: i think that's right i would also tell you and because people don't really know how this works behind the scenes i've been here uh, 18 years and 3 37 days
2: 37 years and 12 days. Yeah, I've
3: been here 18 years and 3 days i have never had a district judge pick up the phone and call me and say tell me what you're going to do in this case, or I think you ought to do this in that case. They, they have us rule the way that we ought to rule. They take things up on appeal or on withdrawal the reference. They rule the way they think they ought to rule. There is not competition between the district court and the bankruptcy court. We just each do our own job, but there's a level of cooperation. There have been times when I will send a note to a district judge that says, you know, you're about to get an emergency appeal of one of my orders. I hope you have some time to deal with it so they know it's coming. But that's the most that we'll do is to let people know there may be a scheduling issue.
2: He has, Marvin has been told he should wear a tie more often. And shoes. And shoes.
1: I uh, I had the privilege of working uh, for Judge Rudolph, uh during my last year of law school here in Chicago. And he told me a story about how when he first joined the bench, uh, the bankruptcy judges, uh, I think who were still referees at that point, uh, had to take a separate elevator from, from the district judges. So it sounds like in the Southern District of Texas, at least we've come a long way from separate elevators for, for the bankruptcy. We have a single
3: judge's elevator, but right now it has a sign out front that says one person at a time, which I won't tell you whether that's ever been violated or not, but uh, it's a single elevator.
1: Very good. There's been a a recent race uh, as to who can complete the fastest prepackaged or even uh, quasi-prearranged Chapter 11 case. Uh, and, And I think that lenders, bondholders, debtors, a lot of participants in the context of Chapter 11 cases see these expedited cases as a way to cut down on time and expense uh, of, the, of the restructuring process. Are these uh, accelerated cases uh, a good idea? Are, are they, I guess, what, what, are the, what are the downsides from the, from the perspective of the bench? Well, first of all,
3: I find it distasteful if someone, and they have said this to me, Judge, you can be you know, the third fastest or the fastest judge ever to rule on this. That should not be the goal. There should not be a race to be the fastest. Let me just start with that. The goal ought to be to do the right thing in the right case. And if that requires speed, that requires speed. I think that so long as you are preserving parties due process rights, that there are unique circumstances or prepackaged cases should be done very quickly. And if the company is in jeopardy, if you don't act fast, I don't think that gives me the authority to take away the due process rights of creditors, executory contract counterparties, employees, or anyone else. But there are ways to confirm plans quickly to provide some stability to the business and save people's jobs while preserving all of those due process rights. And so long as we are consistent with the due process clause and consistent with the code, if speed will help to save jobs and companies and money, we ought to be doing it. But we can't step on people's rights in order to do it. So I, I have really strong feelings about this. And uh, you're, you're hearing them, I guess. And I think it's going to be hard to ever persuade me that I should confirm a plan and cut off people's rights as a result of early confirmation. That's not what we ought to be doing. Yeah, I
2: I agree. It starts with the question of why. I mean, and and I think somebody's got to be able to answer it. And I'm not sure that I buy because it saves money. I'm not sure that that's enough to get me over that threshold. But if you tell me, and I'm going to make this up, if you're going to tell me that the majority of the debtor's suppliers are international and the whole U.S. bankruptcy process is a problem in terms of you know, shipments and route, there are ships turning around, there are you know, it's our suppliers are refusing to do business, there's an international labor force. I mean, I, I can come up with a hundred different reasons to answer that question why. Um, but that—that that, it's the most important question, at least to me. Um, and again, I, I don't think that because it saves money is is the answer that gets me over that threshold. I, Marvin and I've never talked about this. I
3: don't well, I, actually. I, 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 I prop David. Let me just back off. By mm-hmm. money, I, I meant value. If it saves the value of the company, I'm not talking about saving admin costs.
2: Yeah. Okay. I, I, I then then I, Yeah. Then, then I totally agree with you, and um, you know it's. I think that the shorter the time period the more important that balance becomes in making sure that people have the right to have their say and I think you end up I mean if you say look you know, what are the circumstances where this happens I mean you know there's some things that you always see in the ones that really work is one that you have an agreement in your capital structure on on how it's going to occur and obviously, if there's agreement, due process, you know, due process is is a different consideration. I think that in the majority, at least the ones that I've seen, you know, is that your trade is going to flow through and be paid in the ordinary course. Um, I, I struggle with if trade was going to be impaired. That's That would be a hard one for me. I mean, I, I don't know how you do that in a really short period of time. And I, I, there are a whole bunch of, I think if you look at them, be an interesting source of you know, an article or a paper is to say in these cases, I, I, I would bet you there are you know a dozen similarities of things in order for this to happen. These things have to fall in line. And
3: yeah, there, there have been a couple of cases where I've acted really quickly, but I've issued what I've titled and I sort of invented this in a case called a due process preservation order. And I said, you know, I'm confirming the plan, but I am not interfering with any of these rights and people have the right to come in and I'll set a deadline and we'll deal with their issues. Um, I have read complaints about that in the academic literature, but I've not heard complaints about that from participants in cases whose interests have been benefited by doing a due process preservation order. So, you know, I've actually had one landlord where I I preserved their right to come in and object to the assumption of of their leases because I didn't see how we could allow an assumption of leases on day one uh, without the debtor perhaps being held to the burden to prove that they could perform under the leases. And, you know, I've had a landlord come in and say, thank God you did this because if you hadn't, we're afraid we would have lost leases because the company would have failed. So you, I've gotten the opposite reaction, not a negative reaction from you know, people that were affected by it. Who matter. Yeah. And you know I don't do stuff too much for law professors.
1: I think it's, it's interesting that there's a, a sort of direct correlation between the shorter the time, the fewer the parties are whose rights can actually be meaningfully impaired. Um, my, my sense, uh, is, uh, and this is, I can only speak for myself, but that folks go in with this idea that you're going to do a a, a true prepackaged case and then, and then you get in and then some issue comes up or comes out of, of the woodwork and, you're then tempted with this very powerful tool, the bankruptcy code, and you try to figure out a way to to make it work. But I think it's interesting to see how, how the practice will will develop uh, in in that respect. Um, But shifting gears to another topic that is uh, getting quite a bit of attention. uh, And that's the role of independent directors on uh, boards of of chapter 11 debtors. I think that uh there's probably a well known criticism that the folks uh who are serving in these roles are uh professional uh, directors professional independent directors uh and aren't as independent as as the term may suggest what if what if any uh guardrails could be or ought to be put in place uh in 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 the process uh, to ensure that, that the folks who are sitting on boards in this, in this capacity are in fact, truly independent.
3: So take a look at David. I know that the people on the podcast can't, but you can see him. He is not a rubber stamp, and neither am I. And in my view, one of the things that we do in our district that is very important is we are an evidence-based district. We follow the federal rules of evidence. And if there is a challenge to whether a decision made by the independent directors was appropriate, I don't wanna see that person's affidavit or declaration. I wanna see her. And I want her to tell me why she made that decision as an independent director. And I want the people that say that she didn't make it right to cross-examine her. And it's like any other piece of evidence. You can have a biased independent director. You can have an independent director that ought to be criticized. You can have an independent director where you should reject what they say. And you can also have some that have done a really thorough good job and who don't get touched on cross-examination. But the test is... In a court, ought to be what the evidentiary record in an adversarial proceeding produces. So, I'm it isn't hard to meet for me to know that that's the way that I ought to evaluate that. And, David, I you've had some criticisms of directors over the years, too, right?
2: No, uh, fair enough. I, I probably have been the one who's been the most op- openly critical. Of, of the performance of some of, of the independent directors but Justin I want to go back to sort of where you started and that was the focus on you see people who show up multiple times that in and of itself causes me no heartburn I mean why does you know why do people come to Justin Bernbach to hire him they come to you because of your skill set your reputation you know, just what you've been able to do. And so, you know, the fact that you show up in, in seven different cases in front of me, that actually gives me some comfort. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Um, That being said if when I approve an independent director, even if they're appointed beforehand, in my view, it doesn't matter. I expect the same. You're there for a reason. And it's not a job where you get to collect a check and simply watch. I expect you to be doing your job. If you were if one of your uh tasks is to do an investigation, I expect you to do an investigation. When you get on the stand, I you know, I, and we 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 all know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't want to hear a bunch of canned phrases and have zero substance behind them. That's, that's just not going to work. I mean, you know, it's, but on the other hand, when I get, when I get someone and I, and I'm thinking, and I, I wish I could use names on this. Cause I, I would love to give this person a shout out. She was simply the best I've ever seen. You know, she was directing the lawyer. She was directing the professionals. She was evaluating the work product. She was saying it wasn't sufficient. She was sending, the professionals back out to supplement what they had done. That's an independent director that gives me confidence and, and helps me make the right decision, and in my mind, increases the value
3: for all. Okay, I just want to add to that. One of the things that occurred in 1978 when we adopted the bankruptcy code is bankruptcy judges do not pick people to run cases from a business point of view anymore, whether it's a trustee, whether it's a CRO, whether it's an independent director. Others pick those people, People get to object to the selections, and we have to decide if they're disinterested. And that's a great system. I would really hate a system where, you know, let's say before David got on the bench, I could have said, I'm going to appoint David Jones to come in and take over this case from a business point of view because I trust him. Terrible idea. Nobody would ever think that's fair. And so the fact that these folks are picked somewhere else subject to criticism by adversaries, and that we get to review what they say independently, because they are very independent of me and very independent of David. That's where the independence matters. So I'm okay with the system we're using. Uh, Doesn't mean it works every case, but there's nothing inherently flawed about it
1: there have been some suggestions that uh requiring some form of slim down retention uh filing would would ameliorate some of the concerns that that critics have have raised about uh independent directors is would either of you support a change like that is is that something you think would help at all look
3: people have filed objections to Having somebody as an independent director, whether they've gone through the retention process or not, and said, you know, you shouldn't trust this person. What's I don't see the difference. I, I don't really like wholesale changes in the system for what people perceive as a single bad apple out there. David, I mean, are you different than that?
2: So perhaps slightly, is because some independent directors come to you beforehand. I mean, they've been selected pre petition And there isn't the retention process. And my view, which is perfectly compatible with the code and it's perfectly fine with me. However, if I get a preference or if I get a voice in the process, I actually think the retention process adds a level of transparency to the entire case. And and, transparency is a word I say a thousand times going through that process and simply you know having the the independent director's cv be a part of the docket so that people can look at it and having and having all of the constituents in the case having a public document on file as to what their comps going to be i actually think in one place i actually think that that is just it it probably isn't a substantive difference but it is certainly a transparency difference that if I were given a vote, I would I would like to see. But I've I've I have never complained about it uh, being done the other way. But I, I just think it it just adds again just it's an element of transparency to the entire process. I also think, and again, this is me going way too far, is as we look as we start to evaluate the third party release and the exculpation issues that are all out there. You know, at least in the Fifth Circuit, you know, the an order approving a final fee application has meaning. And again, as people are working on alternative strategies as to how they are going to make all this work in the event of legislative change, it's a simple issue that, in my mind, gets
1: often overlooked. I think folks will redouble their uh, efforts in, in looking at that. Uh, so speaking of the the lawyers and practitioners whom uh, the two of you see uh and and no doubt i think some of the some of the finest lawyers in the country probably spend a considerable amount of time in, in your respective courtrooms what separates very good and and strong lawyers uh from those who aren't so and and what can what lessons can, can folks try to adopt from the, the very good lawyering that you've seen?
3: You know, the, the best lawyers that we see understand when they're presenting us a difficult decision and understand well what the other side is arguing. And if you're in a position where you could have written the brief for the other side, because you understand that well enough, you're in the position to make the best arguments and the best presentation. And if you come in believing that your client is the only one that has a credible position in the case, then I don't think you understand the way that we're looking at it. Are there times when these things are very one-sided? Sure. But frankly, the lawyers in these mega cases are so good that if it's an obvious solution, they've generally worked it out before they get here. And so we're presented with a lot of difficult calls and understanding how difficult the call is, I think, always makes for better lawyering. Mean, there, there are also a whole bunch of just obvious platitudes we can say about things that are always going to matter. But if, if you're asking me what's the one key distinction, I would say the people that understand the other side has a good argument, too.
2: It, Marvin, it was funny when you said that. I, I'm not near as eloquent as you are. I would have said what distinguishes the great lawyers from the good lawyers is the ability to listen. We all can talk, but it's the ability to listen.
1: I agree. I agree. So on the, on the flip side, uh, and you've no doubt seen lawyers make mistakes, What what should a lawyer do you know, the, the moment they realize that something they've said or an argument they're pursuing is problematic for a host of reasons, uh, and they, they, I think, get that sense that to continue forward would be a bad idea. I mean, what, what is the, what's the right thing to do in, the, in that case?
2: Well, can we start with what's not the right thing to do, and that's to continue to read your pre-prepared arguments. That's the worst thing in the world. Um, which, if you define it a positive way, you have to have the ability to pivot. You just do. I mean, because you you can't predict what's going to happen. I mean, you can do your best. You can do all of your research. You can be as prepared as you can be. But at some point, you're going to get a curveball. You got to have the ability to pivot and to simply look down and continue to read. I mean, I can't imagine a situation that that ever enhances your opportunity for a successful outcome.
3: I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. Um, I have what people might call a, a pet peeve that we don't respect. Really? Only one? The, the people who file, <laughs> who file claims sufficiently and that we become very almost closed-minded about how to do claims objections. I think claims objections have to be substantive when they're filed. And so I had a young lawyer. uh, I don't know what year she was in, but probably third-year lawyer who was in charge of presenting claims objections. And I thought it was ridiculous what she was doing. She's actually six, but okay. What is that? She's actually
2: a six-year lawyer, but okay.
3: And I took her through what I thought was wrong with what she was doing. And that I wanted claimants to be respected. We're here to get claims paid, right? And so if you're going to object to their claim, don't just tell me you don't own the money. Tell me why you don't own the money, that kind of stuff. This was really hard on, on her. on her, And I could tell that emotionally hearing this kind of criticism from me you was an unpleasant very nice. experience. You weren't very nice. You yelled at her. About a month later, she came back to represent it. She had heard everything I'd said. She came in and said, I heard what you said, and I have redone it. And she's now been here several times. And the fact that she was a young lawyer who could figure out, maybe she figured out I was right, but maybe she just figured out that it was going to happen that way in my court. And she came in prepared for bear. And I was just so happy that she had thought through the right way to do it. She came in, she behaved totally professionally in having done it. She may have uttered some apology words, which frankly were unnecessary. The apology was in getting it done the right way. And at the end of the hearing, I, I told her how much I respected what she had done. So if you make a mistake, I mean, usually we're pretty forgiving about mistakes. We just want to try and get things right. And it, I think if you can back off a little bit and try and listen, uh, you can do well. And she did. David thinks I was too mean to her, apparently.
2: But, uh, well, you, you said she heard you. I'm across the courthouse. I heard you. <laughs> No, I actually, it's a very important lesson. It, look, we're all human beings. We all make mistakes. I mean, you know, isgren and I make mistakes every day. Him more than me, but we all make them. And you know, you just have to own them. You have to. There's nothing that there's nothing bad, at least that I've ever seen, that comes from stepping up and owning a mistake and fixing it.
1: It's uh, it's interesting. The the sort of common thread between your two responses is just. Being uh, aware and, and uh, sort of looking up uh, from the podium and, and just sort of taking in what the court is saying, what other parties are saying, uh, and and not just uh, staying focused on, on sort of what you came in with.
2: Well, remember, Justin, what makes a great lawyer, the ability to listen.
1: I... I uh, had a hearing before Judge Bernstein in the Southern District of New York, where I learned that lesson myself some <laughs> years ago.
2: Well, we all have those.
1: So uh, the last question that uh, I like to ask on these, uh, which has nothing to do with bankruptcy or restructuring—in fact, the opposite—if uh, you—if uh, you were not uh, bankruptcy judges in the in the Southern District of Texas, and assuming no. Uh, limitations, whether they're, you know, age or financial ability, or, or even just, you know, uh, geographic location, what would you do uh, for a living?
3: I mean, I actually don't know. I, I love my job so much. I, I don't really, I intend to die on the bench. Like I'm hoping that one day I have this yeah, heart attack fall over while I'm out here and somebody can haul me off. So there's not another job I want. Um, but I guess, I will tell you one of the things I enjoy a lot that is sort of avocational is teaching. So if I could teach high school students, I get a lot of joy whenever I get a chance to interact with them and teach them. So, I mean, if I had to think about, you know, what to do, maybe, maybe when David kicks me off the court, I'll go do that. Um, one, yeah, the
2: greatest privilege in my life was the opportunity to be a lawyer. I, I loved every second of it. I miss it every day. Um if you have to, if you said, well, Jones, what would you do if if you couldn't be a lawyer? Um, I'm actually taking welding classes. I'm learning how to be a welder, and you know, given the fact that I'm an engineer, uh, at least first uh, first career, you know, I'd be a welder because who doesn't like who doesn't want to like to heat metal and make, cause it to stick together and all sorts of things. Uh, very fun.
1: You really use the term that you have irons in the fire. Yeah, there you go. Uh, for Jamie Spray Reagan said that he would paint houses based on a job he had in college. And he said, he just loved painting houses. Uh, Yeah.
2: He doesn't remember what real work is.
1: Well, he's, he's working. Uh, Well, uh, Judge Jones, Judge Isger, thank you so very much. This has been uh, truly a a privilege for me and and a pleasure. Uh, Our thanks to, to the ABI for, uh, sponsoring and, and hosting this. Uh, it, it's its uh, great to have a partner uh, in, in the API that uh, facilitates so much conversation uh, in our world. So yeah. thank you all very much. Uh,
3: very this cool. Thanks
1: right for the to... opportunity. No, yeah. absolutely.
3: And listen, I, I apologize for what David said.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. You have for 30 years. I always appreciate the consistency. Everybody have a good weekend.
1: Okay. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Justin and Shepard Mullins, for hosting our podcast today. And thank you, Judges Jones and Isker, for, as always, providing us with an engaging and entertaining conversation. And thanks to our listeners for joining us for this edition of ABI Podcast. This and more than 200 others can be found in ABI's newsroom at abi.org. Stay safe and have a wonderful day.